We're back in Genesis 1 this morning, sort of. Um, If you've got your Bible and want to open it up, that's as good a place to plant as any. You remember last week we went into the final portion of the creation week and the creation account when God created man in His image. And last week we focused in, honed in on the way, some of the ways anyway, in which man shares, thank you, reflects, bears God's image. We'll reiterate just a little bit about that this morning. A couple things before we actually dive in. This was going to be two teachings, it's now three. And part of the trouble with this, as you know, is you get into something and realize it has repercussions that you weren't thinking of when you started. And so these things take on sort of a life of their own when you realize some of the things you need to cover. Also, part of this is because what I'll be talking about this morning is something I've actually wanted to talk to the church about in the past as a topical study and have not. And so the text that we're in this morning actually leads quite directly into the topic. Also, a couple other things along this line, though. Um, Some of what I'm sharing this morning uh, is uh, things that I thought about, prayed about, talked about, studied for a long time, and others are more properly what you might call half-baked. So I may not, uh, you may hear things that you think are, I'm in left field, and if that's the case, help me see that later, I'll be glad to listen to you and your take. So some of the things half-baked. Another thing is uh, some of you may be offended by some of the things I say this morning because I'm talking about something that's a very personal issue and it affects most of us at some point in our life. If you feel offended, I'm not trying intentionally to offend you, but I recognize that some of what we share may have that impact. So if you think I'm out of line, you can tell me that later too, and I'll be glad to visit with you also. Also, the things that we'll be talking about this morning really have to do with life and death. And so I would feel negligent, and I think the church would fail its mandate if we didn't talk about these things because that's part of the Great Commission that when we make disciples, we teach them all the things that God has commanded us. And so part of the impetus or the motivation for following this teaching this morning is simply out of that. It's to cover bases. It's to not fail to speak. Paul said in Acts 20, I believe, to the leaders at Ephesus, he was free of the blood of all men because he would communicated to them all the things God wanted him to. So we'll be talking about some issues this morning that affect us all and do certainly have to do with life and death. I know also I will run a little long this morning, so ask your indulgence on that. And lastly, I would say this. This is true whether it's this morning's teaching or something perhaps less uh, controversial. When Paul wrote the Thessalonians, at the end of his first epistle, he said this, examine everything, hold fast to that which is good. Luke in Acts 17.11 commends the group he called the Bereans from the city of Berea because they did this. They listened to Paul. And they searched the scriptures to see if what he said lined up with what they understood God had said in the scriptures. So I would commend both of those things to you this morning. Genesis 1, I'm only going to read two verses out of this portion of the creation account regarding man. Verses 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it 
and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When God created Adam and Eve in his own image, he told them to do two related things. He told them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and to rule the earth. Fill the earth and rule the earth are the two things. We're only going to look at the <clears throat> excuse me, the first of those this morning, which is the command to fill the earth, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, verse 28. Let me start by reiterating a little bit of what we talked about last week when we talked about man bearing God's image, and some of that was reflected in procreation and man bearing children. <clears throat> Sorry, my allergies are catching up with me, and I'm going to be phlegmy all morning, I'm afraid. There is arguably no way in which man is more like God in his creative capacity than in having children, in procreation. When you create another human being who also, like you, is in the image of God, an eternal soul that comes from you but, not, but is not you, this is, for humanity, this is kind of ultimately creative. If you think about this, we are clever. Human beings are clever. We're smart. We're good at manipulating things. So we can build machines, <clears throat> excuse me, cars, air conditioners. You know, in today's economy, we can build computers, robotics, artificial intelligence. But the truth is, at the end of the day, all those things are mere extensions of ourselves. None of them have a life of their own. They're not more than us. We make them. We create them. But they're from us. They don't have a life of their own. When you produce another human being, though, this is an entirely different game. You introduce to the world an autonomous creature. And if you're a parent with grown children, you know this. That is, when you have children, when you're creative in the way God's creative, and you have children, lives exist that didn't used to exist. These are people that they're like you, but they're not you. They have will, emotion, desires. They're going to make their own decisions as they grow older. It's, it's very, very similar to God creating Adam and Eve in the garden. These people who were autonomous, they could choose the tree to eat or not eat. That's just like your children and mine. It's these autonomous people who have a life of their own. They come from you, but they're not yours. They come from you, but they're not you. They're more than you in one way, and they're different from you. This is ultimately creative. I suspect that procreation, the, the command and the blessing to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth is in that sense God's greatest honor, if you will, to mankind to reproduce people like us just as God had created Adam and Eve in the garden. Alan Ross in his commentary, Creation and Blessing, out of the book of Genesis says this, For believers, childbirth is an act of worship, a sharing in the work of God who created life. Having children is a high, high calling. And when a husband and wife like Adam and Eve, originally in the Genesis account, when this loving couple, two different people in a loving committed bond, like the members of the Trinity in relationship with each other, when out of that love they produce another human being, this is the ultimate creative act on the earth. This is a way in which, as far as creativity, we're most like God. Like God. Our culture, the times we live in, the place we live in, has cheapened incredibly sex and life. But by God's doing, these things remain God's greatest gift to us, and that is children, family, each other. 
That is God's greatest gift to us apart from our relationship with him. Our ultimate creative ability is reflected in our ability to reproduce each other. The second thing along this command is that God wanted Adam and Eve and their children and their children to be fruitful and multiply because he meant for us to fill the earth. If you look at verse 28, he says, fill the earth and subdue it. If you remember back in verse 22, when God blessed uh, animal life in the sea and on the land, it said when he blessed them, he told them to fill up the areas he'd created for them, the sea and the air and the land. So God tells Adam and Eve, when he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, the goal of that is to fill up the creation he made for them, just like the creatures in the sea, just like the animals on the land. The creation of the earth was not an end in itself. The creation of the earth was a vehicle, a place to put man. The earth was created for the sake of man. Imagine this, if you went to southwest Topeka or some other place and you saw a big subdivision with big, expensive, lovely houses and someone informed you that they were all empty and would remain empty because they were so nice and so pretty that we didn't want to soil them or dirty them, what would you think? That is, the house, it's not a home, it's not what it was intended to be until someone lives in it. It's created for a purpose, it's created as a dwelling for people. So if you say, I've created this house, but I don't want anyone to live in it, there's something missing here. Many people who call themselves ecologists entertain a philosophy that in my mind is both anti-God and anti-human because it elevates nature, the creation, to the level God gave man. The thinking goes something like this. Don't build houses in that area because that area is more important than mankind is. You know what I mean? Or don't have more children because you're spreading out and you're taking up more and more of the earth. Well, the truth is at some important level when we have children and spread out, we're doing what God commanded us to do. We're filling the house He built for us. This is a good thing, not a bad thing. Now on the flip side, I'll tell you, I I love national parks. I love state forests. I'm not saying we shouldn't set aside places, lands where we can see God's original creativity in wilderness, it's a great thing. It's a refreshing, it's a recreational aspect uh, for us to be able to see these places. I'm not saying anything against that. I'm simply saying the motivation, though, for setting aside pristine land should be to honor God and to honor each other. It's not because those places or the earth is inherently superior or more important or holier than man. We're stewards of these areas, and so. Just like we do in our own houses, we should take care of them. We should take care of the world around us. And we'll talk more about this next time when we talk about man as a ruler of the earth. But it's for a different motivation. As a Christian, we're stewards of God's household. We're not worshiping nature. We understand that God built this wonderful house for us to occupy. And so when he said, be fruitful and multiply, we're filling the house that God gave us to live in. This is a good thing. If you read it all, or if you think through this a little bit, you'll probably start raising objections that go something like this. Adam and Eve, back in the creation, that's one thing. Two people on the earth, the earth is unpopulated. God says be fruitful and multiply. Maybe you say today, the job's done. Uh, Go to cities like uh, Tokyo, Mumbai, New York, Mexico City. You know, cities of 10, 
12 million people and you might say, you know what? The job's done. We filled it up. We're elbow to elbow. We're stacked on top of each other in skyscrapers. And you know, the truth is there's probably areas of the world that we could say in some significant way are overpopulated or some areas where the resources of the land around these groups of people aren't sufficient to feed them. But guys, the, the world's a lot bigger than these cities. Here, here's a few numbers for you. If you go to a, a country like Bangladesh, lots and lots of people, small geography, you'll see numbers like this, almost 3,000 people per square mile. It's a lot of people. Matter of fact, if you go to World Almanac, if you look at what are really city-states like Monaco and Gibraltar, you'll see numbers that stagger this, 18,000 people per square mile, something like this. These are, these are essentially cities, though. These, these aren't countries. But Bangladesh, small country, lots of people, 3,000 people per square mile. It's a lot of people. Come to the U.S., it's about 84 people per square mile. Go to Australia and Canada, seven and nine people per square mile. Now, I, I give it to you that some of this, obviously, there's uninhabitable areas of the earth. That is, there's desert areas. There's frozen areas. There's areas that are so mountainous, practically, they're not inhabitable. I understand all that. But simply to make the point, the earth, this household is plenty big to house and feed and take care of the six billion or so people that are currently on it, and then some. We don't have an overpopulation problem in the sense that there's not enough space or there's not enough food. There's plenty of both, in fact. There's other problems sometimes that relate to population and food, etc. But it's not that the earth isn't big enough, and it's not that the world can't provide enough food for these people. Those aren't the problems. Related to this thought that maybe we say, gosh, the world is so well populated now, we don't need to keep reproducing for that sake. Let me share a couple things related to that. One is this. If you look at statistics around the world, you will see that uh, birth rates are falling in almost all of the Western countries of the world. Birth rates are falling such that, and especially in Europe, such that nations are not reproducing their own populations. You have to have a rate of about 2.1 to 2.3 children per family to just replace the number of people in a country or a culture. That's just replacement because, of course, people die and some people don't live to maturity, etc. If you don't see that kind of statistic, a country is not even reproducing. It's not maintaining its own population. If you look at numbers of European countries and you see growing populations, guess what? That's not based on birth. That's immigration. It's immigration. It's not birth rates. Russia, France, and other countries in the European and, and Asian theaters are giving families tax breaks and cash payments to have children because they understand there are very dire negative implications to these dangerously falling birth rates in the future. <clears throat> in the United States, you're probably aware that in the coming decades, we face what's called a crisis in Social Security. And it goes something like this. You know, post-World War II, we had what's called the baby boom. And we had lots of people born to these families. But what, ha what happened after the baby boom to those next generations, people that were coming up, getting married? What did they start doing? They started having fewer and fewer children. So what's going to happen is the baby boomers, uh, many of us in here are in this group, 
the baby boomers are going to retire. And if you're counting on Social Security to help you in your retirement, you're in trouble. Because this bell curve of population, it's inverted for us. When Social Security was started, I think it was between 20 and 30 people were support workers, were supporting one person on Social Security. The numbers coming up in the next couple of decades will be three to one. It's not sustainable. Besides the fact that we've actually spent the money that's been put into Social Security, that aside, the population won't support those who retire through Social Security. There will be more people retired, that age range, than there are younger to support them. Why? Because families have chosen to have fewer and fewer children. And there's a consequence to that. Another consequence that comes along the same area is the number of abortions that have been performed in this country since Roe v. Wade, basically. And the numbers, we have pretty good numbers on these. We've killed about 40 million of our own children in the last 35 years. About 40 million of our own children we've killed in the last 35 years legally. Now think of this. We're a country of about 300 million people, and we're saying a couple of things. We're going to face a social security crisis because we don't have enough workers. And also related to illegal immigration, you know, one of the arguments related to illegal immigration, that is not cutting it off essentially, is that we need the workers. Well, guess what? We killed the people who would have given into social security. We killed our children that would have been workers and would have been the people providing goods and services all along. That 40 million today, by the way, would probably be 50 or 60 million because those people from, say, 1970 or so, they would have grown up and had children themselves. You're talking about a sixth of our population doesn't exist on the earth because we've killed our own children. So when we think the world's overpopulated, there's another side to that. We are underpopulating good parts of the world today we're killing our own children so that we're facing in the future and now another set of crises for the lack of having children. So God said, fill up the earth. Uh, reflect my image by recreating, having children. Fill up the earth, the household I've made for you. And the third thing is this about having children. Having children and family is God's greatest gift to us apart from himself. And I won't spend a lot of time on this, but let me read your words. Solomon said, the richest, wisest man in the world said this in Psalm 127. Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Let me, let me hone in on these key words. Children are a gift. They're a reward. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. That is, you don't have a couple, you got a lot of them. I'm one of 11. And I can tell you my parents believed this stuff. They thought this was true. I'm glad my parents had 11 children. What if they'd stopped at four? I'm six, by the way. I'm number six. I'm in the middle. What if they'd stopped at four or five? Four or five is a nice round number. Would have, would have sufficed. But I can tell you I'm happy they had 11 and my youngest Sister's glad they had 11. Solomon said children are a gift and a reward and a blessing. That was his take on children, the wisest man in the world. That guy that God gave supernatural spiritual wisdom to said children 
are a blessing. They're desirable. The next psalm, Psalm 128, follows up a little bit on this theme and says this about those who fear God. That is, those who have an appropriate respect and esteem for God, whom God is therefore free to bless. It says this, You'll be happy. It will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. For thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. That is the psalmist's view. And by the way, God's view. And the view of those who have walked with God through the generation since the world began was that children were a gift. They were a blessing. They were desirable. Children were not thought of as nuisances. They were not a waste of time. They were not a diversion or a distraction from the better things of life. Children were the better things of life. That's the biblical assessment of children. It's not the assessment of the culture we live in, but that's God's view of children. They're a blessing. They're a reward. They are desirable. They are the stuff of life. You know, all the things you possess in this world, by the way, the chairs you sit in, the cars you drive, the houses you build, the toys, the trinkets you entertain, you know what's going to happen to all of them? They're going to burn up. They're going to be cinder and ash. Second Peter says God will consume this earth, this world, in fire. It'll be gone. The only thing you and I can make that lasts forever is people, is children. That's it. That's what survives this earth, this time, this world. It's kids, eternal human beings made in God's image. In childbearing, we display God's image and likeness. We fill the house He created, this world, for us to live in, and then we enjoy God's good gifts to us. If you don't think kids are a blessing and a reward, your view is deficient. It's warped, and it's warped by the values of the culture we inhabit today. Now, it seems to me, related to this, that we can err on either side of this issue of having children, the point of view we entertain about having children. One is this, we can reject children as gifts and accumulate stuff instead. We can err on that side. We reject God's gift, we accumulate stuff instead. However, there's another side too. We'll talk about both briefly. We can pursue the gift of children in a way, I think, and I will argue briefly at least, that actually does not honor God. Pursue the gift of children in a way that does not honor God and that often does more harm than good. Related to the first though, rejecting children as God's gift. You know in the United States, we have so much stuff, guys that we have fooled ourselves into thinking that stuff is more important than people. The trouble is stuff cannot satisfy your soul. God has given you desire for things that last. He's put eternity in our hearts. He's given us a, a desire in our soul for things that last, and that's primarily for Him and for each other. And the stuff that you latch on to, they're trinkets and toys, but that's all they are. We consume them, they wear out, and they're gone. And yet in our culture, because we have so much material wealth, we tend to be fooled that material wealth is where it's at. But it's not. Real wealth is in God and in people. To bring people into the world and to help them to grow up to love God and to love others, it's the highest call. It's the most joyful duty. It's the greatest challenge with the greatest rewards God could ever give any of us. There's no higher calling. 
to impact the life of someone else for Christ and for eternity. There's nothing else you can do in this time, in this life, that's more important than that. None. People are the only thing that will outlast this earth. You can't make a more important investment than in people. It is short-sighted, and it is, in my view, it is warped thinking to place inordinate value on things versus people as our culture does today. And you know, part of what's happened is this. Since the industrial age and now moving into the scientific age, we kid ourselves that mankind is getting better and better. By the way, this is a product of the theory of evolution, that mankind is getting better and better and better. And you know what the truth is? We're not. Our toys get a little better. They get a little bit more refined, but we are simply the latest generation standing on the shoulders of those who've come before us. We're only the latest generation. We're not better than everyone else who came before us. We're of the same stuff. We're just the latest. We're not better than everyone else. And we are a short-sighted, I believe, and foolish nation because we value stuff more than we value people. World Magazine's issue from July 21st recorded information from a Pew Research report, and I'll share part of this briefly with you. This just had to do with what Americans related to family life considered most important or really important. This is what the Pew Research report said. Only 41% of Americans view having children as very important. This is down from 65% from 1990. In 17 years, we've lost, uh, whatever that is, uh, 24%. People now don't think having children is very important. Listen to the other things in this, in this research. 93% thought faithfulness in marriage was very important. Me too. This is a good thing, not a bad thing. 70% found a happy sex life with their partner. That was very important. My hand's up on that one too. Sex is a good thing. It's God-given, not a problem. found sharing household chores was very important. You know what, at this point I'm starting to think we're hitting the mundane. But 62% thought this was very important. 53% rated an adequate income as important. It affects everything we do. It is important. No problem with that either. But the point is this. In this study, in this research, only, the only thing that having children ranked above was agreeing with your spouse on politics. I'm serious. This is pathetic. This is the value we place on children. We don't think, the only thing in this study that ranked lower was agreeing with your spouse on politics. That's where we put the value we place on children. Barbara Defoe Whitehead from the National Marriage Project said this, related to this report, the popular culture is increasingly oriented to fulfilling the X-rated fantasies and desires of adults. Childbearing values such as sacrifice, stability, dependability, maturity seem stale and musty by comparison. Our values have changed. They have flip-flopped. We don't value children today typically because we value cars, boats, careers, bigger houses, newer appliances, bigger stereos, better vacations. And guys, the truth is all this stuff's fine. It's fine, it's, but it's stuff. It's not where we're supposed to set our heart because it's not what God inherently, ultimately values. It's all good. It's just not what we should set our hearts on. It's the stuff we should use in appropriate ways, thank God for, and go down the road while we focus on the things God counts worthy, which is Himself 
and each other. There are, uh, there are possibilities, there are reasons why people might choose not to have children that you from a biblical perspective, I think, could defend. And they might be things like uh, a woman's health might be such that it would be unwise or it would be a significant risk for her to attempt to bear children. I could see that. Uh, we, we met, Kathy and I, many years ago now, we met a couple who were in missions. They told us they'd intentionally chosen not to have children so that they were free to serve the Lord. Now, I grant you, uh, that can sound very self-serving. I'll tell you, I thought from these folks it was genuine. And they based it on 1 Corinthians 7, uh, the passage you know where Paul says, it's better if you're single. Why? Because then you're free to give your undistracted devotion to the Lord. And that's what Paul was after. And they said, kind of taking that one step further, they wanted to be able to serve the Lord in missions in a way they understood children would be a, a heavy burden and a responsibility, and so they chose not to. I bring these up, though, as the exception, because they are just that. They are very rare exceptions. Most couples either say no to having children or attempt to manage a childbearing in a way because it has to do with financial and convenience issues, not because it's related to some higher moral reason, some desire in which they're seeking to honor God through their childbearing. I'm sure there are valid reasons to manage how many children you have, when you have them, etc. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying carte blanche, uh, there's nothing you can do in this area, certainly. But I, I do think this, the vast majority, we, and, and I mean the people in this room, I mean Christians in the United States, I mean people in the West, the vast majority of reasons and times and occurrences in which couples, families choose not to have children is simply for selfish reasons. It's for small-minded, self-serving reasons. It's not for higher moral reasons. It's not for population control, and it's not to honor God. It's because I want more stuff for myself. I think that's really what most of it comes down to. If you practice contraception, and I, I won't go into detail in this stuff at all this morning, but I'll mention two things that are concerns for me and that I just want to share with you too. Uh, you know that there are some forms of birth control that are actually abortifacient in the way they operate. That is, if a woman uses an IUD, it doesn't prevent conception. It is an abortifacient. It means that there are occurrences when she conceives and a fertilized egg comes down to the uterus and it can't implant. And so that new human life is lost in her monthly discharge and she would never know the difference. That IUD acts as an abortifacient. It's, it's an abortion. Let me tell you something that's a little bit more controversial and on this especially. Uh, let me just invite you again. Uh, consider, pray, seek God on this. Uh, the pill, it is argued, and the stuff I've read on this to me looks past contradiction. The pill, actually, which many, many people use for birth control, the pill at times operates also as an abortifacient. And this is the way it goes. Normally, the pill keeps a woman from cycling, from an egg coming down that could be fertilized. And the manufacturers of the pill, this form of birth control, will tell you statistically their product is about 99.5 to 99.7% effective. It's all well and good. The 0.3 to 0.5 is the problem. And what happens in these cases is this. 
The pill doesn't prevent conception. A sperm and an egg unite, a human life begins. But just like the IUD, the pill makes the lining of the uterus inhospitable to that zygote, that fertilized egg, and it's discharged just like it would be in an IUD. Now, point 0.3 to point 0.5 sounds statistically insignificant, but this is what happens. Take millions of women, cycling monthly, do the math, multiply the point 0.3 to point 0.5, and what you get with conservatively in the United States alone is this. 100,000 on the very lowest end to 1.5 million aborted pregnancies through use of the pill. This is significant to me. If I was using the pill, I would want to know this. And again, I just invite you. There's plenty of information on this available. You can go online. I can give you a couple sites if you'd like to read up on this. But if I'm trying to manage the way I'm having children, I need to be aware that there's a downside to some of this medicine and some of the abilities that we have. The fact that they're available doesn't mean that they're good choices. Some of what goes under the guise of of uh, family planning actually is not keeping children from being conceived. It's simply keeping them from growing. And we need to be aware of that. In saying all this, I realize I'm not looking at life through rose-colored glasses. Lots of times, births, the entrance of a child into the world, does not come about in a happy, healthy, wholesome way. Now, there are children who are born as a result of rape. There are children who are born into families that are not healthy or in which... Uh, fathers are not present. There are children born with mental and physical handicaps. I understand all of this. I just think that we should err on the side of life and that God's commissioned us to fill the earth, to reproduce His image in the earth, and to enjoy the blessings He's given us. And I think we ought to err on that side instead of saying no to life. In contrast to the majority of the culture that says in some significant way, no to life, no to children. We want other stuff instead. There's a flip side, and it's this. It's families and and couples, often Christian families and couples, who are pursuing children in ways I think uh, are dangerous, in ways that are medically possible but not necessarily desirable. Again, from World Magazine, July 21st. This is recent. This is going on all the time. This is simply one article. Let me read to you from this briefly. Sextuplets Bennett, Trigg, Lincoln, Cadence, Lucia, and Silas Morrison were famous before they were born. The Minneapolis CBS News affiliate created a web page where viewers could follow their mother's pregnancy, watch interviews, even view her ultrasound photo. Parents Ryan and Brianna Morrison also had their own Internet website in which they collected donations for their family. 22 weeks into the pregnancy, the Morrisons went from being a local human interest story to a national spectacle when the deaths of four of the babies followed their extremely premature births on June 10th. The surprise of seeing a multiple birth story turned from entertainment to tragedy led onlookers to try to place blame for the unhappy ending. Pro-aborts criticized the the Morrisons for not selectively reducing, that is killing in utero, some of the babies early in the pregnancy. Others blame medicine, saying today's fertility treatments are both too risky and too tempting for desperate couples. 
The infant mortality rate for twins and other multiples is more than five times higher than that of single births, according to the CDC. But births of triplets and higher number multiple births in the U.S. has quintupled since the advent of fertility drugs in 1980. The Morrisons, both children of pastors, conceived with the help of ovulation-inducing drug folistum, one I've not heard of before. Science has given us options on increasing the likelihood that we can have children, but they are not always options that are good ones or ones that I would advocate. You know, in biblical times, you can read something like Genesis 30, where they thought a mandrake root would help a woman conceive, and so Jacob's wives argue over the mandrake root. Uh, We're more sophisticated today, of course, and so we've got other methods, like the ovulation-inducing drug, folistum. But also, think of this. This is the downside of pursuing children in ways that are available, but not necessarily uh, inherently desirable. Uh, In vitro fertilization, we've known families who've born children through this method. Uh, You harvest a mother's eggs and a father's sperm. You take them into the lab. You, You put these eggs in basically a Petri dish, and you fertilize them. And it's a process, and it's kind of a numbers game because they don't know how many will actually fertilize, right? And so they take more than the mother can bear, and they fertilize as many as will be fertilized. So then let's just say that they've got 10 fertilized eggs. Those are little human lives in that Petri dish. So how many can mom bear? Twins? Triplets? Which ones do they take? Which ones get chosen to go in mom and which ones get left in the dish? And then, of course, down the road, let's say mom takes three. They could put a lot in her, not knowing how many will actually implant and and come through gestation and be born. But you guys know we've got this national issue now where we have hundreds of thousands of little human lives frozen in labs around the country. What do mom and dad do with those? We fertilize 10. Mom's going to try three, so we've got seven left behind. So we freeze them. These are, this is science fiction run amok, but this is what we're doing to get children. We're creating life that we don't bring to term. We're freezing them. Some of these, of course, are where we do stem cell research from. So what do we do with them? We disassemble them for parts. This is in the name of, of honoring God through having children. Guys, I, uh, I can't help but tell you, I just think a lot of this goes beyond what is God honoring or beyond what we should be doing. We're pursuing life and we're leaving death in our wake. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. There are couples... And they want to have kids. And we say, God bless you, that's a great thing. It is God's gift. And they try to get pregnant and they can't. And what do you tell them? Do you say, go to the lab? I wouldn't. I don't feel comfortable saying that, personally. What do you say? By the way, this kind of desperation isn't new. You know in Genesis 30, there's a woman named Rachel and her sister's having children and she's not. And what does she say to her husband Jacob? She says, give me children or I'll die. 
That's how desperate she felt. And that's the way couples oftentimes feel today. I'm going to die if I can't have children. And what's Jacob say to her? It says, Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Jacob says in the end, Rachel, it's not my deal. I'm not withholding children from you. God is. You know, ultimately, the God we live and serve, live under and serve, is sovereign. God causes or allows all things. If you're a couple that wants to have children and you're not being successful, give that to God. Give that to God. Make your requests known and pray about it. You can investigate options, but give it to God and trust Him for outcomes. I don't know all that this will look like for you, but start there. Don't run to a lab. Don't run to men and, and doctors and scientists to leave a, a death, a, a wake of death behind you in this desperate chase for children or life. First, give that to God. Pray to God. Ask Him to intervene. You know, sometimes God's answer is He's not going to give you children. Sometimes that's the answer. And then I assume God still means in your life for that to be a blessing. And God will still use you in all the ways he intends to in this life before you get to heaven. Also consider this. We have people in our midst who do this. We're going to be interacting with an agency that does this. Adoption is often, I don't want to say an alternative to childbearing, but if you're a couple or a family that wants to raise children and that wants to honor God in the doing, you can adopt children. Children who otherwise are not going to be in a loving home or in a Christ-centered home where, where parents talk to them about eternal perspectives and issues and says, these are options. Adopting kids who need loving Christ-centered homes is a big deal. It's a huge need. And again, the Haiti orphanage that we're looking at helping support now, that's part of what they do. There are children in Kansas today that were born in Haiti that came out of that orphanage. Adoption is not the same as bearing children. I don't say it's one for the other. It's different. But it's a way for a family to be custodians and caregivers for people to give them an eternal perspective they might not otherwise have. Let me say this too in closing on this issue. Paul said about giving, he had a, a perspective on giving in 2 Corinthians eight twelve, in which the church in Corinth was taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And he said this, uh, if the readiness is present, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what they do not have. He said to Christians who wanted to give for a worthy cause in Jerusalem, he said, give what you can. God accepts what you've got. And if you're a couple or a family that wants to honor God through child rearing, it's acceptable to God according to that desire to honor Him. That finds acceptance with God your desire to honor Him, whether or not you can biologically have children or not. The attitude towards God finds acceptance. Let me close on somewhat of a tangent, and it is this. The world has changed since the creation, obviously, and generations have come and gone, and God's work in the world today is to save people Save people born in His image, now fallen, now cut off from His direct fellowship. It's to save them. It's to cause them to be reborn, to gain a second birth, to be reinstituted in fellowship with Him, to bear His image through Christ, and to populate a new heaven 
and a new earth. That's what God's doing in the world today. He's saving people out of those who are born on the earth. He's populating heaven through rebirth. And you and I, related to the children we have, the friends we know, the family members we interact with, the people we work with, go to school with, rub shoulders with, etc. You and I, like having children, can be involved in no more important than work than helping people be born again. God's work in the world today is to save people so that they can live as His sons and daughters in heaven forever. We're negligent if we're not participating in this born-again pursuit of God on the earth. That's what God's up to in the world today. Also, let me say this, a couple things. Um, If you have 20 children, you're loved by God. If you have no children, you're loved by God. Having children does not make you any more or less acceptable to God. Your acceptance and mine is in Christ. You stand complete in Christ before God the Father, beyond blame. You're good to go. God doesn't love you more. He doesn't love you less based on how many children you have, when you have them, the other things you and I do in life. We're accepted. We're loved because we're in Christ, fully, unconditionally. The last thing is this. If you've blown it in the past in any of these areas, and I guarantee in almost any room and almost any audience you address, uh, there's gals who've had abortions, there's things that have happened in the past that you're either ashamed of, you feel bad about. God forgives us. And guys, you know, the truth is, Psalm 131, God, if you count iniquity, who could stand? James, we all sin in many ways, all of us. If you've blown it, If you've never confessed that to God, confess it. Tell the truth. Lord, I blew it in this area. I acknowledge that. I give it to you. Thank you for forgiveness. And if you've confessed that to God, go on. Don't hold on to that. If God's forgiven you, if you're right with Him, this is true about anything, you go on. God says He won't bring those to His own mind. He puts them away far as the east is from the west, a place that that space in essence never meets. That's where God puts your sin. He doesn't bring them up. If you've blown it in the past, confess that to God and move on. And lastly, God's a God of life. So whatever this looks like in your life, pursue life. Err on the side of life. If that's having kids, if that's sharing the gospel, whatever that looks like. Think about these things. Pray about them. I realize in an audience as diverse as ours, these things directly affect some of us. Very, very indirect application to many of us too. But think about these. Pray about them. Come to to your term between you and God. Search the scriptures. Look at the available information. And in the end, err on the side of life. God's a God of life. Err on the side of life. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, life and death are in your hand. You're sovereignly in control of all things. Father, help us not to delude uh, ourselves in our own motivations uh, about having children, not having children, sharing the gospel, not sharing the gospel. God, help us to make it our aim to honor you in our lives, in our families, in our marriages. Father, for those who have children, help them first and foremost share the gospel with their children, that their children become your children. And Father, for families with kids, help them as families to share the gospel with those around them, to understand the importance of not just being being born, but being reborn, Lord, to enjoy and 
benefit from face-to-face fellowship with you, restoration, life, joy, and peace forever. Father, help us to be wise and prudent in these things and help us to be able to interact with others in ways that are helpful, non-condemning on one hand, Lord, but forthright, sensitive, and helpful on the other. Help us to live in ways, Lord, here and now, that honor you, that respect life, that say yes to you, the God of life. In Jesus' name, amen.